everybody, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode 57. I'm Joel. And today we're going to be talking about a really important topic. How can we become a trauma-sensitive coach? I'll be talking with David Trelevin, who's the author of Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. He's an educator, a speaker in demand right now, and he's really working on this intersection between mindfulness and trauma. He's also a very experienced coach. So, yes, okay, so as coaches, unless we're trained, we're not here to do deep trauma work with our clients. But it's it's very likely that we'll either be experiencing clients who are dysregulated right now because of the stress they're encountering, or even um, we'll experience clients who are, are displaying signs of trauma. So we're going to talk about what do we do in those moments? You know, we're not here to do the deep trauma work. That's for people who are trained. But how can we be a best support to our clients in those moments? And the big idea is how can we help people move inside this window of tolerance? When they're outside of it, they're dysregulated. That's where people become stressed and then even traumatized. And for sure, these times with the coronavirus are times that can really have people be moved outside of that window of tolerance. So how can we help people move back inside the window and find the regulation to find this this resilience and well-being? We'll talk about also how do we know when to refer clients? You know, how do we know when, you know, this is like, this is the edge of my scope here. And how can we then say to clients in a compassionate way, I'm here to uh, suggest that you work with someone who can support you with this. I'd love it if you would share this podcast. You can find on our podcast pages on coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. Share buttons there. I just want as many coaches to receive the wisdom embedded within these podcasts with all these beautiful teachers we're having. So if you are inspired, please do that. And that being said, we're going to dive in now. Here's David Trelevin. David, uh, great to be with you again, David. How's things with you in this crazy world right now? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Uh, it's good to be with you too. Things are, um, as for many, they're just all over the place. Uh, a lot of both pressure and opening, I'd say, happening at the same time for people. Um, and then holding that bigger context of, I think, the way that coronavirus is just really exposing the inequities that were there and the people that are more most vulnerable are being um, targeted by this. So I'm, I'm here in the Bay Area, just a, a lot of um, uh, a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, and also people that are also some of them find relief, I think, in being able to go inward if they have the means to do that. So it's just this wide range of experience. How, how about you? How's it going over there? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's all of that too. And, and, and one thing I forgot to mention is like one of the beautiful things is there's all these kids now playing on my street because they're off school. And uh-huh. actually, that's really beautiful. I don't know if you can hear them in the background. Let me know if they get too loud. Yeah, yeah I, have, I can't hear them. But... <laughs> all right, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I really, it's the whole spectrum for me, you know, between feeling the um, poignancy of, um, oh, did it just freeze? Nope. No, no. Okay. So I know I'll yep. put that there. Yeah. Sure. Just the, the whole spectrum of, 
the poignancy of my, you know, my um, parents canceling their trip over here to, to be with their six month old granddaughter mm. and, and, and how that actually is bringing up, uh, out the sense of how our connection was habituated. So it just brings that raw love to the surface. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. Um, and then just the relief of, of having to stop, you know, mm. and, um, the break in the habituation of everyday life, there is some, there is some relief in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, just, just what we named in our pre-conversation, just I, sometimes I just feel fear, anxiety, um, great. My heart is broken open, you know, hearing the stories that of people on the front line and, and people who are losing loved ones and all the uncertainty. So it's just, um, it's just all in there, you know, yeah 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 and i think you know we we can um we can weave this um situation into our conversation today um and we're going to talk about trauma and trauma sensitive coaching because an incredibly valuable and timely topic and um and then you know i think we can also link that to perhaps how people might be finding some sense of resourcefulness or resilience in these times as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's great. So where, where do we, you know, let's start with um, defining what trauma is and, and then we can talk about what trauma sensitive or trauma informed coaching is and then take it from there. So great. that question, well, what is trauma? How would you define that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, in some ways, like a simple and then a massive question at the same time for anyone who's done any study into it. But I'll define trauma here as any event or series of events that's stressful enough to leave us feeling helpless, overwhelmed, and often profoundly unsafe. And one of the ways that you can think about trauma is on a spectrum. Um, we call, you know, we refer to trauma as traumatic stress, and trauma is the most intense form of stress that we can experience as humans. And we're always experiencing stress to some degree, even just, you know, getting out of bed in the morning. There's a whole range of uh, what we call stress, which is really anything that challenges our system. And I think stress has gotten a really negative connotation, like, oh, you're stressed out. But actually stress can be very positive. We need stress to grow, to adapt. And so if you imagine a spectrum on the one side, we just have kind of everyday stress that is um, supportive of us to um, both grow and to live through adversity. And then on the other side, we have traumatic stress. We get to more of this extreme form of stress. This is defined in in different ways. There's the obvious um, definitions and connotations of traumatic stress, which is like Um, loss of a loved one, serious injury, sexual violation, things that I think we now collectively acknowledge as trauma. And then there's a whole range of um, situations like um, significant uh, neglect as a child or um, emotional abuse of people that maybe don't fit into uh, necessarily the old mainstream definitions of trauma, but also have traumatic impacts. So one other thing I'll say about trauma is one place that's really shifted the field over the last couple of years has been away from looking at the particular event that is a trauma, like did you live through XYZ, and looking at more the impact of, of an experience 
on the nervous system. So it's, it's possible that a client that people are working with wouldn't necessarily say, well, I'm, I consider myself a trauma survivor. And at the same time, they might've had responses in their nervous system, which we can talk about, that actually makes um, trauma a very useful and necessary topic for them. So it's a whole spectrum. And it's, I like to think of it as, as uh, again, the spectrum around from stress to traumatic stress. And actually, that makes me think about the relevancy then of this topic for these times, you know, where we could say there's a real potential for people to be experiencing trauma, you know, with what's going on in the world in so many different ways from, you know, the collective impact to the down to the individual, how that, you know, collective arising of the impact of this virus impacts individuals from the loss of loved ones, loss of income, stability, all those things. And, um, and therefore, you know, the, the relevancy for coaches to be able to be trauma sensitive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what's so interesting is that not everyone who lives through what we might have called a traumatic event will necessarily have any kind of symptoms or difficulty in its aftermath. And I mean, I think this experience around coronavirus is one particular illuminating example where there'll be folks who are living through massive loss of income of a loved one who are experiencing what we call post-traumatic stress where after the you know traumatic event there are ongoing symptoms like a dysregulation of the nervous system intrusive thoughts nightmares things like that but then there's other people that will live through this experience who will be actually untouched they may even be stronger for it so it's not as black and white as, well, this was a trauma and this wasn't. It's often that we need to be dynamic. And then I think this is a big part of your work with Coaches Rising is how do we empower anyone who's a coach or anyone who's offering one-to-one -one work or is doing group work? How do we support people to be listening deeply and to be dynamic? And I think as we, get, we can define trauma-sensitive coaching here, it's less about a technical intellectual definition of trauma. That's important. I think it's important for us to, to have our rigorous definitions. And then at the same time, it's like, how do we be responsive to the moment to moment experience of some, that someone's having, whether we're labeling it traumatic or not? I mean, that, in many ways, that's important for insurance companies and in some ways for treatment. But in other ways, with the person sitting in front of you, it's like, how can I respond best? And trauma-sensitive practice, I think, is just one added tool that we can have as coaches um, as we as we actually offer our work to others. What, what I like about what you're saying is, you know, of course, as soon as we talk about trauma, it brings up the question for people of like, what is the right response from coaches when working with trauma? Because, you know, um, many people say, yeah, that's not the role of coaches. You know, and of course, I think in our conversation, we need to define where is that boundary you know, where a coach can support and where they should refer. But, I, but what I like about what you're saying is this moment to moment kind of thing is that, well, yeah, and it, it, it is here, you know, or it, or it can be here. And then, so what do you do in that moment? You know, like, absolutely. so it brings it alive and, and makes it kind of workable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be a helpful time to define the trauma sensitive practice or trauma sensitive coaching. Cause I think that, starts to tease out some of the questions that don't always have easy answers. 
about, well, when can I or can't I work with this? And I, as we wade into these waters, I think there is something so important and essential and responsible about being able to know the edges of our circle, like kind of our edges of our circle of competence or saying, wow, okay, now I'm in the water where I might not have the responses or interventions that someone needs to actually heal or transform their, their trauma. So I think that's actually a big part of trauma sensitive coaching is how do we know? How do we know if we're actually past our edge of competence or, or where would we know that it's time to refer on? So why don't we put a pin in that um, and come back and I'll want to define trauma sensitive coaching here. And let, can I just ask one yeah, no, quick just, question as well? Yeah. Before we define what um, you said, some people, um, you will will become traumatized and some people won't with what's going on right now. What makes the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, if you had the answer to that question, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I would be just turning this back on you. Well, there's, there is a number of, okay. So there's a couple of different factors. Um, one is what is the two things with what's happening with a person, like an intra experience in the moment is um, does that person a feel a sense of helplessness because that will often entrench trauma symptoms. So, which is interesting with coronavirus. So here we are in a moment where people are being often highly isolated. And then we have this very looming virus, which is hard to actually identify. We have the news, we have a negativity bias when we're watching the news there is a certain degree of helplessness that some of us will feel. There is some research that suggests that when we're living through a traumatic experience, that degree of helplessness really matters for whether we're traumatized in a longer term way. So that's a more intra experience, what's happening in the person. And then we can widen out a little bit and go, well, what are the quality of connections that this person has in their family, intimate network or their community? There's also research that says, you know, the more that we are connected to others, that we actually have the chance to tie in with someone else in the aftermath of something traumatic. Again, that's a what we call a resilience factor, something that helps us to process an overwhelming or traumatic experience. So there's a couple different factors at play. And then if we zoom out even further and we say, okay, well, let's look at social conditions. What would be, you know, are there communities that are actually best supported to not become traumatized in the aftermath of an experience. And there's, there's such a con there's so many different factors that are at play. And so I'd say to look at those two factors are really important. And then just to particular factors of resilience inside of a human that supports them to not be as traumatized. What are things that can happen after a traumatic experience that actually supports someone to process through? So there's a number of factors that are happening and we don't totally know, you know, what it is that will, what's that bright line that says this person's going to be quote unquote traumatized or this person won't. Yeah, thanks. And, and I think, you know, we can tune into that a bit later perhaps about what can we do, you know, um, and, you know, I just think, yeah, that capacity for somebody to have presence, you know, self-awareness to, to recognize when, when am I feeling helpless and um, how can I meet myself in a way? So on top of all those things you just said, how can, I, how can I kind of shift my own state or meet myself in a compassionate way that would allow my, you know, myself to kind of 
um, find resourcefulness and resilience. Uh, I think, yeah. Well, this is what gets so interesting in the, the, the study of trauma is that in, in that moment or that series of moments when we're experiencing that level of stress, if we look at, if we pull back a little bit and we look at the neuroscience and the neurophysiology of this, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've done enough study here that I think we can make some, um, some broad comments to help give us a map. So if we have, you know, many, many folks will have heard of these two different parts of the brain. We have more neocortex, the most evolutionary advanced part of the brain. And then we have other parts of the brain, the limbic system, what's known as the kind of a reptilian or a survival based brain. Of course, all of our brains looking after our survival, but we have these different aspects of the brain that, that are taking care of us in different ways. And the part of the brain that go that helps us make meaning, and that, as you just said, helps us connect with ourselves, our resilience, that knows that can generate mindfulness, that knows what's happening. That part of the brain often goes more offline or is dominated by parts of the brain that are more about survival. Um, Elizabeth Stanley will be, if, who's someone who you'll be, uh, I know, talking to later. She does more uh, work around this, around the neuroscience. And that's all to say it's really difficult to actually be mindful when we're living through a traumatic event or in the aftermath. Even though we might have the best of intentions, we might even have a really solid practice. It's really hard to be mindful. And so working with other people is really important. What's called a, like a psychobiological regulator. Like when I'm here with you and I can see your face, there is a way that just that presence and just seeing, you know, we have now gone back a year or two now, I see your face, it does impact my nervous system. It brings me back into a place where I feel more regulated. Now that's not to say that coaching is just, well, you know, if someone's traumatized, then we just, we just be present with them because trauma is more complex than that. And again, we need to find that line where we say, hey, someone needs support beyond what I can offer. But someone can have trauma, be doing coaching work with us, and we can also support regulate them in a way that will support their life and their work going forward speaking into the value of the coaches, the role that coaches can play in these times, you know, in supporting Absolutely. everyone. Um, well, let, let's define trauma-sensitive coaching. Would that be um, a good play direction to go in right now? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's start there. So the, the, trauma, the definition of trauma-sensitive practice that I know comes from the um, National Center for Trauma-Informed Care here in the U.S., and it's a 4R definition. And it goes something like this. So the first, if, if a person or a coach or an organization is to call themselves trauma sensitive, that means that they can one, realize the widespread impact of trauma, two, recognize traumatic symptoms, third, respond effectively, and fourth, actively prevent re-traumatization. So I'll just say them again. So it's realizing trauma exists, recognizing symptoms, responding effectively, and then actively promoting re-traumatization. We wanna make sure that we're far and away beyond anything else, ensuring that we're doing no harm inside of our work. You wanna jump in? Yeah, well, you, so you said like actively not promoting re-traumatization yet, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so this is where um, with trauma, trauma's not just a negative emotion, which is what I think 10, 10 or 15 years ago when I started, I thought, well, trauma is just like intense grief on some level. But actually 
when someone is experiencing trauma in an ongoing way, we're working with different parts of the psychobiology that have to do with our survival. We can't just make different meaning of the trauma. So the first, as we wade into these waters around trauma-sensitive coaching, it's to have a deep humility about the, the, what it means to be working with traumatic stress, to commit to being able to recognizing it and responding well, and to know that just our presence, we might be bringing the biggest heart that we could imagine to our clients and to the community that we're working with, but just our presence alone does not mean that someone in our care is going to be best cared for in terms of trauma. It actually sometimes can make things worse if we're asking someone to keep paying attention to their body and their experience when they're living through a trauma. They need, need something different than just our, our presence and care. They need specific things. So, so the trauma-sensitive definition is to say, how can we make sure at a minimum we're not causing harm? And then how can we recognize and then respond effectively to trauma when it's there? Mm. Well, let's talk about maybe how we, well, let me say, is there anything more you want to add about, you know, um, this first point, you know, of like realizing that there's widespread trauma um, before we talk about recognizing how it might be showing yeah. up in, in, in somebody? I think it's a massive point place of study for many of us is that that first R in that four part definition, it asks a lot of us. I think it asks us to be in the practice of continually turning and facing the trauma that surrounds us. That could be trauma in our family or community. It could also be more collective trauma. So when I first read that, I thought, oh yeah, I could check that box. Like I realized trauma is out there. But the more that I've been studying trauma and trauma-sensitive work, I realized that's, that is an ongoing commitment that I think we make to have our finger on the pulse of suffering as it is arising inside of the collective communities that we're in. So for example, with this moment right now, coronavirus, as I, if I'm a coach working in this current environment, I've done enough study and work to know that there are certain people who will be experiencing symptoms of trauma because of the pressures, because of the intense stress that's being placed on them. So just to have that in the background, uh, it's, not, it's not to fear monger. It's not to say, oh my gosh, I, I need to be afraid of this. It's actually to say, let me just have one eye looking out for potential traumatic symptoms and keep doing the work of realizing the traumas out there and that I need to be responding to it effectively. Mm. And on top of that, you know, I mean, over the last years, it seems like we are recognizing the kind of cultural traumas that may exist in, in a really fast way, you know, like mm -hmm. with, with all these different movements, like me too movements and so on that, that, um, you know, that point to um, these traumas that, that exist. It's a really interesting time, and I think it's a this could be a big, um, almost separate conversation that we that you and I could have, and that I think a lot of people are in. Is what does it mean that trauma is now being talked about in a much in much more broad terms? And there's a, a term called concept creep. Uh, I, I've forgotten the name of the of the originator of concept creep, but basically saying in the humanities 
the ways that certain terms are are being spread out in a, a much more like a wide way that are being accounted for and used in a more diffuse sense. And I think that there's something important about that. I mean, you use the Me Too movement as an example. This has been so, so important for communities, for, I mean, whole countries to realize the impact of sexual violence. There's a really powerful uh, book called um, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, who talks about the ways that sexual violence, for example, only until quite recently was acknowledged as traumatic. So Me Too movement's doing this amazing service of really that realizing the impact of trauma. And then I think there's ways that it can be used, it can be watered down too much, where someone says, oh my gosh, I went to the grocery store, as an example, and that line was so traumatic. And it's like, well, we need to be very careful about when we're using the word trauma. So if there's one thing I'd say on this conversation, it'd be that we're just um, respectful of the way that we're reserving this term for the most intense stress that we can experience and the intense adversity we can experience. And that if we, I think if we water down the term too much, it loses its, its meaning and its potency. So I just want to name that as a potential uh, uh, I mean, uh, tension point, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's such a delicate kind of topic and Absolutely. I really appreciate you naming it though. But, but yeah, you know, like I, I've seen that play out. Um, and it does seem that, um, that, that, that it can almost play into, um, kind of like a lessening of resilience, you know, and Absolutely. a lessening of our capacity to meet one another, um, because we're, um, you know, we're, we're kind of coming from these positions and the other is the enemy. And, you know, I mean, again, like it's such a big conversation and I don't think it's part of our scope today, but, but really worth acknowledging the, yeah, the kind of nuance of all of this. And I, well, I think there is one thing I'd love to say as we're diving, you know, we're getting into the R's I know here, but there is, as you're saying, I think there is an important conversation about trauma-sensitive practice not being coddling people. This right. isn't about, yeah, you know, it's not like walking on eggshells and saying, well, we got to make sure everyone's comfortable. As you just said, we all, we all will experience traumas to some degree. I mean, research tells us that you know, the, the vast majority of us, 90, 92% of us will, of course, live through a traumatic event. That's by some ways the nature of our existence. Um, and that doesn't mean that we have to then, uh, as you're saying, to take away from people's resilience or to somehow assume that that was always a bad thing. We grow also from, from hard and overwhelming experiences. So this isn't trauma sensitive practice isn't about saying we're just trying to avoid people feeling uncomfortable. Uh, and there's a recognition that sometimes to integrate trauma, we need more tools than we might have as someone trained as a coach, for example. Let's talk about how do we recognize trauma? Uh, would that be a good place to go now? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So there's two, two answers to that question, but I do think it's a core responsibility that if I'm a coach and I'm working with someone who has a history of trauma, uh, and I'm, and, or actually, let me back up. If I'm working with someone and then I'm starting to get the feeling that this person is becoming flooded and re-traumatized inside of our work together. Can I actually recognize that? And the danger here, I think, in coaching is that you are a hammer and everything becomes a nail. 
that we start thinking that, oh, I'll just keep bringing my tools to it. And, you know, every negative emotion, we just kind of bring the same, the same tools to it. So we have to be somewhat uh, conscientious there about being able to recognize trauma symptoms to then be able to third respond effectively. But if we stick with the responding or sorry, recognizing for a second, the two answers are one, we can actually just start to learn what symptoms of trauma are in an ongoing way. So that could be, we can just read a list and we start to move with that. But then there's a bigger model here that I want to bring in that we talk about in trauma-sensitive coaching, which is the, the window of tolerance. And the window of tolerance comes from uh, Dan Siegel, neuroscientist that many listeners will know, who's just done a lot of work around uh, the brain, well-being, also parenthood, how to work well with, with kids and youth. And the frame here with trauma is that we all have a window by which we are uh, most optimally effective in our life, that we're functioning in what we could call a regulated way. It's a place that we feel most connected to ourselves, most able to kind of handle the waves of challenge and difficulty that we face in our life. And then when we're outside of our window, our nervous system becomes more dysregulated, meaning that we're feeling hypervigilant, agitated, dissociated, shut down. It's a lot harder to be present with ourselves, with others. Now, what a number of trauma writers said is, especially a woman named Pat Ogden, is she took this model and she said, we can really map this on to trauma. One of the core symptoms of ongoing traumatic stress is that people end up outside of their window of tolerance. So in a really simple way, what that means is that someone's moving through their day, all of a sudden they have a flashback, meaning they have some kind of emotional intrusion or memory of a traumatic event. All of a sudden they're hypervigilant, their heart's racing, they're sweating, or they actually feel very foggy, dissociated. They're out of their window. And that what trauma can do in a long-term way to people is leave them in what's called dysregulated arousal. They're outside of their window. And so that our primary work is to make sure that people can actually function inside of their window of tolerance when we're doing coaching work with them. And I'll just say one more thing is, this is for those of us that aren't going to become trauma professionals, that aren't going to do a multi-year study program around trauma, this is one frame we can start to work with is the regulation and dysregulation of the nervous system. And an overarching question for coaches is, based on the work that I'm doing with this person, is it leaving them more regulated, meaning more connected to themselves, more able to handle, again, those fluctuations of arousal that happen in the body? Or is it leaving them actually more dysregulated, spun out, disconnected? That is a guiding question, can be just a first order question for us to know whether A, are we being helpful and B, do we need to refer out? Yeah, I, li I like that um, because, yeah, you know, I think this is a realm, of course, within which coaches can, it becomes very applicable, doesn't it? You know, we can actually track that and we can track in our clients. Are they inside this window of tolerance? Um, so, um, well, I, I, I can feel the impulse to kind of ask, what do we do to support them to come into that window of tolerance? Um, that could be one direction. Um, the other one could be like what what you know. You said there there is a list of um, um, you know kind of things that people might be exhibiting if they're traumatic. 
I'm just, is that right? I'm curious what some of those might be, you know, yeah, if, yeah. If, if we're in a, if we're direct face to face with somebody, um, you know, and we get a hunch or they might be displaying signs of trauma, what, what would those be? Yeah. So this is where learning about the nervous system, because here we are, when we're talking about traumatic stress, we're, again, we're talking about the most extreme forms of stress that we can experience. Therefore, necessarily, we're working with different survival mechanisms in our psychobiology or basically inside of the brain and the body, the nervous system. And as you know, as everyone will know here, you know, we are, we are capable of remarkable feats of strength and deeply intelligent survival responses in the face of threat. So things, you know, these stories about people moving cars off of people or the ability to be able to get still and quiet um, or even dissociate, which on some level is a really intelligent response to threat if we break that down. That's what we're working with when it comes to trauma. So knowing that we're working with the nervous system and that that's uh, kind of where we're putting our attention as coaches and as people learning about trauma it's less, if I get back to, we get back to this earlier part of our conversation, it's less that we're taking a verbal inventory. It's less that we're doing an intake with someone that we're saying, tell me about all your traumatic experiences. We, we're not moving down. We could, could, could go down that road of asking, well, did this XYZ experience in someone's life, is that traumatic? Oh, okay. If so, then let's go over here and we'll do this. Instead, it's actually much more effective to stay present with someone, as you're saying, and really be learning to track their nervous system moment to moment over a session and then over weeks to see if, irrespective of whether we're going to call this traumatic, what's happening with their nervous system. So when I found this frame, I found it actually very empowering. That's not to say that we're not, we're doing trauma-sensitive practice, but really we're looking at the regulation and dysregulation of the nervous system. So to answer your question, the empowering piece here is I found it for people who are just learning to recognize trauma is what are the signs and symptoms that someone is outside of their window when, and one of the ways to think about this is like the accelerator and the brake, which relates to our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Just imagine for yourself what happens when your brake is slammed down. Like just think about that inside of your body, what happens, that sense of vigilance or that sense that can be intrusive thoughts. I might be sweating, my pupils are dilated, I feel agitated. That's, that's on the top end, what we call hyperarousal. That's on the top end of the window. On the bottom, we have something known as hypoarousal. So imagine what it's like for you when the brake is slammed down. You know, you feel foggy, you feel it's almost like you wanna to go to sleep or you feel, it's hard to feel sensations, how to feel your body, emotions. That in very general terms at this stage in this conversation with you are the bands, the zones that we can start to look for to recognize traumatic symptoms. It doesn't mean that if someone's experiencing dysregulated arousal, that they're necessarily traumatized. I'm, I'm not meaning that, but it can be that a flag goes up and then we go, huh, let me get curious here about whether someone might be experiencing trauma and how I can best support them in that moment. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I'm presuming, you know, like, um, we might even be able to track them visually, you know, so, um, we might see them dissociate perhaps, or yeah. what seems like dissociation or them shutting down or, um, you know, like becoming 
agitated or something like that. Yeah. And I think this could bring us to your, to that question you'd ask, well, what do we do? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, and, and so many, even if we haven't necessarily worked with trauma, we've likely worked with trauma. So we, we all have that spidey sense, for example, of when someone's there, but they're not really there, that kind of thousand yard stare into the distance and the horizon, or like you're, someone's very agitated. Again, it's not to say that we need to stop a coaching session and go, hey, my assessment is that you're traumatized. Actually, quite the contrary. It's, it's just bringing awareness to that moment and going, huh, okay, my sense is that they're dysregulated. I'm noticing that through nonverbal signs that I can learn over time. Let me get curious about, well, what, now what can I do? How can I respond effectively? So would that be, do you want to go there for a sec and talk about? Yeah. Um, so... I'd say two immediate questions come to mind for someone. One is, am I the right person to be actually holding this process? And that's just from right from the get-go when someone is finding themselves highly dysregulated inside of a session with me as a coach, I start asking that question. And again, I'm thinking about that, the edges of my circle of competence. Can I hold this? Do I know what's next? Would I know the next question to ask? If I start feeling over my head, that's a good moment to actually enter in and we can talk about ways to do that respectfully, but it's, it's, it can be very respectful to say, Hey, based on the territory that we're now in, I want you to get the best care that you can get. I really want you to be supported. I'm in a question about whether actually I have the competence to hold you here. Can we have a conversation about this? For example, we can, there's yeah. different ways that we can do that. So that's first is, am I the right person? And then second, what does this person need in this particular moment that's going to help support their window? Now, I'm bringing in the window not to say that if we're out of our window, that's immediately a bad thing. Again, we all end up out of our window for different reasons. Many of us on this, you know, imagine people listening, we were out of our window during certain aspects of this coronavirus crisis. Now, ideally we have tools of self-regulation to help us come back into our window. And so that's the second place I would go as a coach. Okay, this person's dysregulated. Unless I'm a trained trauma professional, my work is not to do active trauma processing outside of someone's window of tolerance. That's not the place you want to go. Actually, where you want to go is to stabilization and safety. That's what I'm thinking. We're going to the fourth art to do no harm here. So that's where I start to go. Someone's highly dysregulated. I'm thinking, okay, well, what are the practices I can do? And we could get into a couple here right now, but every one of us will have different ones. Sometimes it's the breath. Sometimes it's, you know, it could be four deep breaths. It could be actually having someone start to orient to different places inside the room. So we can unpack that here, but that's going to be part of uh, more of a trauma-sensitive coaching is knowing the tools that we have in that moment to help someone come back into their window. I, I just remember there was one client I had where I was like, okay, this just seems to me like there's some, some trauma showing a dysregulated nervous system for sure here right now. And, um, you know, based on the client's story, it fit for me, you know, they'd been through several severe events. And um, I actually, um, I just shared, you know, like very openly, um, yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, this is what I see happening and this is what I feel might be going on. And, um, you know, I want to share that I'm here right now. We can, let's continue the coaching. I want to support you. 
I'm also going to recommend that, um, you know, some of this work is outside of my scope and I could recommend some people for you to go and meet. And I, I found that an incredibly um, empowering conversation, actually, just mm. even saying that, you know, and it was it, um, created a kind of warmth of connection and a safety for this person where, where that regulation already started to, to happen before mm. we even did anything else, you know? So, yeah. I, what do you think Joel supported? Because it could have gone a number of different ways. And I could imagine a scenario or a listener would be saying, well, you know, that, that could be triggering for someone because you're saying you're too fucked up. Excuse right. me. You're, you're too, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, a way I just got me curious. What would you say was the ingredients or the factors at play that enabled that to feel as what it sounds like as empowering as it was for both of you? I, th I think it's a great question. And I think the first thing I would say is, is me being comfortable with it, knowing, you know, my own uh, boundaries. Um, and, and then that, that kind of, um, let me say, how would I put it? It's like, um, welcoming what was arising in a way mm -hmm. like making it safe it's like it's okay this is here mm. and um you know like i just want to say like for me it's very fine for us to stay in this conversation and and, and work with it i want to support you and and so it was that level of like being okay with it all i think there was a kind of transmission of that for the for the client where they just felt this kind of sense of um a, a welcoming and I think they, they were able to welcome it themselves. Like I, I really was honoring them where they were at. Does that make sense? It does. And I mean, we could, um, it's almost like we could take this example and then pause it and look at it from so many different angles about what was there. And then how can anyone who uh, doesn't know much about trauma or is, is developing their skills as a coach, what, you know, it's almost like if you were to bottle up the skills there, and we tried to break them down. What was what was happening that enabled that person to be empowered? Because that's, gosh, you know, it's been such a focus of my work is to ensure that someone who's experiencing trauma doesn't end up feeling isolated and ashamed in the aftermath of of, of an interaction. Like the, that, ideally, in a in a moment that trauma was coming to the foreground, which is a you know that's not bad news. It sounds like you were a deeply dignifying of that person's experience. Uh, and then there was a confidence in you that you didn't do anything wrong. It's not that you need to feel ashamed to say, well, is it, you know, is it, I don't have this training. Actually, you're saying, I know my domain of expertise and I'm not leaving you, I'm here. And I wanna make sure that all of you is getting cared for in really competent ways here. So I just think I'm just fascinated by the ways that you left the person in choice and agency inside of that. You opened the conversation with confidence and you left them dignified. And I think all of those different uh, ingredients are essential to good trauma sensitive coaching. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I'm really appreciating the eloquence with which you named what was happening for me there. Like dig dignity is a great word for it. And um um, just, I, just to say one more thing that I remember happened, which I think was useful. And then I, I want to, I think it leads back to, to furthering this conversation about what we might do is 
Um, I then was very careful to both um, invite the client at times into a kind of um, awareness of their, their nervous system or their body, what was here, but, but not too much. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. then we would just carry on the conversation. Yeah. You know, because with other clients, I often really go into tracking what's emergent, you know, in the moment, but this, I was like, no, um, we will do that somewhat, but then we'll just, then we'll just carry on. Yeah. And, and, and talk, I'll follow the client basically. So I was kind of tracking that, that, um, that difference or that, that vacillation. Absolutely. And what, <laughs> a, a, what had, you know, that again, this gets back to that, like, what were the competencies when, how did you know, I guess I want to ask you like, well, why did you do that? And then, but what had you learned that to not go deeper per se? Yeah. It, um, well, I didn't want to, in a way, I think it comes back to that point number four, not, not re-traumatizing. Right. So, right. you know, it's not my agenda. So I'm not like wanting, you know, to like push the client into feeling something. That's why I did it. And how did I know? Um, again, I think my own embodied work's been really important here. There was just, um, in, in some sense, it was a feeling, you know, like I, I could track almost like that, that um, window of um, tolerance, you know, I could, there was a, there was a sense of when it was enough mm. for the client to feel what was here and then, you know, allow that kind of um, other type of conversation to happen. And then, then even in the other conversation, there was a sense of when it was okay to go in again. So I was kind of tracking the feeling of it Absolutely. moment by moment. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're raising, a couple, I think, really important pieces around trauma-sensitive practices. That the one, if I hear you right, you're saying the more the more that, based on your own work, you know that terrain yourself, the more effective that you could be about knowing mm, someone might be at the edges of their window here. That you're you're tracking them in a non-verbal way based on your own experience, which is awesome to have that that gauge sort of in, inside of yourself, and then. There's one other piece here to bring in, which is a real um, kind of core principle of trauma-sensitive coaching, which is that we're not, again, unless you're trained in trauma as a trauma professional, that we're not actively processing traumatic memories. Actually, what, where we can be so useful as coaches is to be what's known as resourcing someone, giving them tools that enable them to regulate and feel safe. Uh, this came, there was a model that I talked about Judith Herman earlier, and that originally came from someone named Pierre Genet, but basically talked about a phase-oriented approach to trauma. Phase one is safety and stability, and phase two is where you're actively processing traumatic memories. We leave phase two to trauma professionals as coaches, but phase one can also be very important. It's like, how can I help someone feel safe and stable? And again, we can have the conversation about at what point do we need to make sure that someone is, has moved on and is working with someone and, and is doing phase two work, but that's the edge. That's kind of the boundary that we need to work with is that we, the best we can do is to really support people's safety and stability instead of, as you're saying, you knew not to go deeper. And that's mm -hmm. sometimes that's the main mistake is like, well, what could go wrong? Like more must be better. Why don't you go, okay, great. You're feeling that you're feeling that feeling. Why don't you go deeper into that? And that's the, if there's one takeaway in trauma-sensitive coaching, it's that more is not more, more is not better. 
we need to sometimes back off and that's actually the move that's going to best support someone. I think we're in a really interesting point here because, um, yeah, you know, um, that's, that's, that's what I was holding. Yeah. I wasn't holding the frame of that, that second phase of trauma work. Oh, I can help this person, which actually is quite an egotistical agenda if I'm not trained, you know, Mm -hmm. um, um, I was holding like, yeah, how can I help this person feel resourced? You know, at the end, how can I have it that at the end of this hour, they walk away, you know, feeling more safe or resourced. And then they know, they have a clear step of what to do next, you know, mm-hmm. to find mm-hmm. that, that support. And that, that's what, that kind of, that's what created that confidence in me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it brings up this question around the change agenda, you know, like, and, so um, one of the things I remember, and this is what I do a lot in my, with my clients anyway, I think it probably speaks to the window of tolerance, is I wasn't, um, I, w- I, wasn't I was dropping the change agenda. In a way, I was just like, okay, so this is here now. Okay, let's just, let's just include that. Not like, okay, this is here. Now we need to push on through to that n- next place. No, it's like, oh, so, so there's just a bit of tension in your, you know, in your, wherever in your belly or whatever. Um, let's just, let's just allow that to be here. Mm-hmm. So there was, yeah, I was just, I was really following the client in a sense, as well as knowing when to, yeah, you know, move out of that deepening and just go, go into that other type of conversation. I, I want to run something by you here to see what you think about this and whether this holds water for you, because I know you, you know, with Coaches Rising, you've just done so much deep work around coaching and the framing of coaching, which is just, it's held in so many different ways. That one of the distinctions as I hold it around coaching and therapy, coaching and professional trauma work, that the distinction would be that coaching is more present to forward focused and that there can be more present to, to more historically focused. And what I hear you saying is, that there was a way that you slowed down with that client and you let the, you were present, let yourself be present with them, but you didn't ask the question that then evoked historical memories, like take me back here or let's talk about it. You actually, if I hear you right, there was still a forward facing, future facing, like what are the, you dropped the agenda, but the person still came out with tools and connected to future actions as opposed to, and this is how I hold a distinction with psychotherapy is, in the moment of pausing, slowing down and getting present, that you were then thinking, okay, how can we go backwards into the past to process and integrate traumatic memories? That's one distinction I have around coaching and therapy, but I know people, they differ around this. So I'm curious what you think of, of that distinction. It's, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's, um, it's, it's a big question because I, I think there's so many ways of looking at it. And I would, um, I would say that's a useful frame like that general, yeah, coaching is forward looking and therapy is backward looking. And I, but then I think once you start to look closer, um, it becomes, um, you know, there's so many types of coaching and therapy, you know, for example, there's a whole movement in therapy where, where one would start by clarifying, what do you want to get from this? You know, what, what do you, and so, therapies adopted that and i think there's a lot of coaching approaches which definitely include like historical yeah patterning and conditioning so once you start to look more closely yeah i think um yeah that that, that those distinctions start to to dissolve more and so um yeah uh, uh, it's 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 a 
I, I mean, personally, I'm forward-looking, but then I'm working with what's arising in the moment that may have historical origins, which is um, arises in relationship to you, you know, um, making gains on what you want in your life, what you're committed to creating in your life. That's great. That's awesome. I think you're bringing it for, to high to high definition thinking here that we get a little bit more granular, and um, I, this is helpful because. I would then put back to you that that makes sense as we hone in on this, that of course it becomes more blurred that there's coaching, which is actually going to totally be using history and asking questions about how one was shaped, for example. But I would say around trauma in particular, that distinction between forward and backward might hold a little bit more water here because the questions that we can ask people if we're asking them to go backwards can be, if the trauma, trauma happened in the past, which it often did, that can be much more activating and potentially dysregulating. So there's a, so I, I think if we're segmenting this, com, this distinction around coaching and, and therapy or tra- professional trauma work, that that's why it's important. That again, we're not going to phase two work and going backwards that we continue to look forwards. And I hear you, I hear you that that's, it's, it's too rough of a well, distinction. And yeah, no, but I think it's, I think that's good. And I, 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 I don't know if I ever asked somebody about, Oh, where did that come from? Or, Oh, let's go back to that event. I, I think I never do that. But for example, I might work with a part that's arising in relationship to them, you know, in their leadership role in their business, mm. you know, mm. and, then, and then it brings up a, a part of them that, um, feels like it's not worthy in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would help the client meet that part in a very compassionate way, mm-hmm. dropping the change agenda, mm-hmm. you know, again. So I think, yeah, there, so yeah, rather than, for example, um, you know, um, having the client, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like as a compensation, develop some skill that layers over the top, you know, Yes. Um, um, uh, because I feel this lack of self-worth, I'm going to um, compensate by, by uh, having, co- you know, this confidence, but it's actually not a real confidence, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, so in, I, that, yeah, that makes it more, I, I most never ask like about going into the past, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's what comes up. I think this, this example of this person that you just named around working with a part of them could be a, a helpful just to keep building on what we said maybe uh, a while ago about, well, how would I know again when to be working with someone? To me, if you're helping someone work with a part in the present and that's actually leaving them with a sense of more agency choice and empowerment moving forward, awesome. Now that part that they're working with may have traumatic content. And so that could be happening in the session and you go, whoa, I'm in the deep end here. I don't know if I can handle this. But if they're regulated and they've done enough work around their trauma, just because someone has a history of trauma doesn't immediately exclude them from doing coaching work. But at the same time, if you were working with that person and they were doing the, working with that part and it was pulling them into a traumatic narrative, a memory that was overwhelming for them. And by the end of the session, they're dysregulated. They come back next week. They said, I, I ended up feeling much worse. I I don't feel like this is useful or helpful, that you're seeing that they're not becoming more regulated, more in their window. That's an immediate flag that that's a moment to go, whoa, actually I need to be referring on to someone who can hold this different complexity in a different way. 
yeah i think that's really helpful that's super helpful um that i love i love that that idea because you know the day the other side is um that the coaches become very scared you know about yeah. going anywhere that's kind of you know emotional territory um that has some kind of historical patterning that's showing up you know people get very scared of that and that would be a tragedy for me too you know if someone freezes in the face of the content that you're bringing forward, I mean, this gets back to what I think you said with your client, where there's a way that you did enough work to say, okay, I can, I can be present with this and then let me make a really clear eyed decision about how to best support this person. But that's a vote for, for all of us. You know, if we're doing this, if we're in the domain of coaching and transformative work that we just keep doing our work, because the more that we can be present with ourselves, our own histories, the easier it is to ourselves not get triggered. Because we have windows too. That I might be with a client who all of a sudden, whoa, I'm out of my window because I can't tolerate their fill in the blank, their anger, their grief. And that's real. That's legit. And the more work we can do to widen our window, I think the better service we can be of our clients. And just be confident. We don't need to, if there's no shame in saying, just asking that question internally, am I the best person? Do I have the competence to hold this? There's no shame in that. To me, there's more confidence in being able to ask that. Um, I'd love to ask you about, um, you know, we talked about some things that can't, we, we've been exploring, what could we do if somebody is dysregulated? Mm-hmm. Are there any other, um, you know, tools or ways we can be with clients? Um, that that are useful when somebody's getting dysregulated. Yes, absolutely. So I'll maybe three points here. The first is what you said earlier, that more internal awareness is not always going to be helpful when it comes to dysregulation. So if we ask a client, if they're feeling super anxious and we ask them, you know, where do you feel that in your body? Or just feel your heart. <laughs> um, that can actually be very, that can actually be more, more activating for them, as you can imagine, because you start to feel where you feel most anxious and it ca- catches you into a circle, or sorry, into a, a cycle where you end up more anxious or dysregulated. So number one, to regulate, we don't always ask people to go deeper within. Uh, the second point is we can work with the relationship. So depending on your, uh, your relationship with this client or how regulated this client is through interpersonal interaction, you can say something as simple as like, I'm right here with you. And let's have me as a client, as, a, as your coach, let's place me anywhere in a way that feels most supportive for you. So sometimes I'll be working with a client and I'll say, you know, I'm aware that we're facing each other. Would it feel good for a moment if I just turn my attention gently to the side? So if I was just to even bring my attention to just two o'clock, just sometimes breaking that attention can feel really supportive for clients or for other people, good steady eye contact, that actually might be really regulating. Um, They're borrowing our own regulation in some ways. We become a psychobiological regulator for someone. So number two, we can use the relationship uh, depending on how strong and resilient the relationship is with our client. And then third, we can help the client use resources outside of their body. So a classic um, practice inside of trauma work is to ask someone 
to orient their attention to something in the surrounding environment that helps give them a sense of ground. So maybe if there's a window, you could ask them, just let your attention go to anywhere in the room that feels most supportive for you right now. That might be, you know, for me, it's like there's a tree outside that when I spend some time with this tree, I notice take a breath, it's more regulating. It may be naming three different objects in the room that can be a really regulating practice, like a brown table, a silver lamp. Trauma often pulls us into the past and takes us out of the present moment. The more we can help people access the present uh, through their senses or through a practice that lands them and grounds them in the present, often the more regulating that that, that can be. I know you have practices too. What, what have been go-tos for you uh, when you're working with clients? Yeah, um... I mean, just I was thinking of titration uh, when you talked about the, you know, looking at out the window at the tree, and um, I've um, sometimes used that question, um, you know, is there a place in your body that feels very different Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. than, you know, for example, the the tightness in your chest? You know, someone might say, yeah, my feet feel very, you know, relaxed or open, and so I'll I'll invite them to kind of feel that for a moment. Um, and then, and then maybe see how the chest is doing then. So it's like, you know, that, that's one thing that I've used. And again, you know, I think your point about having people just feel more is a really good one. So you have to be kind of careful, but yeah, it's really inviting like someone that feels very different and more resourced in your body. So that's one. Yeah. That's a great one. I mean, these, these are the tools that we can commit to learning and that we want to have a wide repertoire as a coach that in a moment, you know, you just sense it like that. That's a great example of, of what I've learned is, you know, pendulating our attention between one place of the body that feels resourcing and one place that feels tight. That's a great example. And that you've seen, you know, we learn to know when we need that in our lives and when a client might need it. I think of it, Joel, like um, I'm really a fan of this fairy tale called the snow queen. If you know, it's Hans Christian Andersen. And it's actually, to me, it's a myth and a fairy tale about trauma. And the Snow Queen comes after this character has lived through a traumatic experience and they freeze. They basically, it's this protective response and the Snow Queen has them feel frozen. And then the whole journey of the fairy tale is to basically to heal. And, but I, I think of trauma a lot as winter. I think of trauma a lot as a, a deep freeze And there's a way that usually as humans, we're cycling through seasons. And here we are with coronavirus. We're in a winter. I think this is a deep contraction. Now, ideally spring comes and the thaw starts to melt and we go into a summer. But with traumatic stress, we end up in winter for often an extended period of time. And working with trauma is to enable us to remember the seasons. So just that example about feeling a place of resource, it's like reminding the body of summer. So I'm feeling the winter in my chest and then in my feet, I remember summer. Oh yeah, that warmth, the ground, the aliveness. Great, let me, let me put my attention on the summer. Now let me go back to the winter and a little bit more summer. And we just are trying to thaw and remind our bodies of that movement, that natural expansion and contraction. And, a lot of the practices we can learn are about doing that, getting back into rhythm. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
I, I wonder if now is a good place to um, talk about just a, a little bit about the power of embodied transformation and that we have this, you know, trauma sensitive coaching um, module, whole, whole like, um, you know, section to the program. Mm. And I know you're going to be teaching in that. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about what you're going to be teaching um, in your sessions. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, I think it's in some ways a response to what's happening right now in, in the world uh, with, with this pandemic of acknowledging that stress and trauma will be present in any coaching work you know we're doing going forward. And it really follows, uh, at least some of the work I'll be doing really is following these R's about what is a basic and practical framework that we can learn as coaches, which gosh, I mean, we need, we're gonna need, we, we both need and we're going to need a lot of skilled, uh, heart-centered, grounded, rigorous coaches going, going forward. And how can coaches learn skills and tools around trauma so that they become sensitive to the needs of people struggling with trauma? To know how, again, going through these R's, to respond effectively, recognize trauma when it's there. So it's both providing a general framework. And I mean, you, you, you all have some amazing faculty um, in the group who will be coming at this from different angles. For example, around really looking at the neuroscience. Um, Stephen Porges, who really does work around something known as polyvagal theory, which has been incorporated into so many different aspects of trauma work. So we're going to be coming at trauma and coaching from a number of different angles, social context, looking at trauma and oppression. How do we do well by our clients? And ultimately, my hope is that it's both a combination of a really useful and practical framework and then just a number of tools that people come out with very specific practices and tools that they can apply right away inside of their um, coaching. It's not a fear mongering thing. Like here's, here's a way to make sure you're not hurting people, though that's an important component. It's actually designed to empower coaches and say, great, here's a way you can feel even more confident inside of your work instead of just, uh, if you're someone who's more of an ostrich, like I just don't want to look at it, it's going to encourage you to be able to see trauma clearly and work with it in, in really skillful ways. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I actually, it's a beautiful call. You know, I feel the calling forth for coaches there uh, in ways that we need to equip ourselves and in ways that we can serve in these times. And uh, Absolutely. I actually, on we're getting back to the this window just for a second is how do we commit as humans as coaches right now to supporting people families and communities to really widen that window to be able to be present and show up for what's happening in the world right now because the wider our window is the more grounded action that we can take and i think coming into this coronavirus the collective window was very narrow. There's a way that we were under so much pressure already and there was so much political polarization that I think that's a really powerful commitment to take on. So I, I'd, uh, I'm glad to be you know, partnering with you around it. I feel super excited about it. Mm. Um, I wanna ask you about where we can find out more about your work too. And um, just before I do that, like just as a, as a capstone to, 
what's exciting you or like where are you what's the edge of your work or or, or the the research or people that are exciting you that's a poor podcaster's question because i just <laughs> sandwiched so much in there but you know i'm just looking for like what what's like next for you or what's emerging that's really exciting you hmm. thanks for asking well as as i know you care about i'm interested both in personal change and social change i i care about people changing and in this moment of a global slowdown or contraction, I also care about systems change. Like what's a world? I now have a niece and there's currently four generations alive in my family. And I'm just, you know, I'm feeling as I'm in middle age, like, okay, what's, what's going to be my and our contribution. And what I'm most interested in is an approach to change that both can um, really honor the differences that we experience in identity while also at the same time dignifying the ways that we're all in this together. And as someone who's focused a lot on uh, uh, looking at the intersection of trauma and oppression and being interested in these different movements like and being committed to movements like Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, and and seeing the amazing, powerful highlighting of oppression and injustice from these movements of folks who are saying, we need to really see who's not being seen here. I also have been feeling the importance of remembering a shared identity. And I've gotten really caught up in my own, uh, I don't know, my own location, my own identities, being being white, quote unquote, and also being a man, the privileges there. But there's a way that we've got, I've gotten quite far away from a shared purpose and a shared identity. And I'm interested in a coaching framework, in a meditation framework that really can honor diversity and difference, but also can still make room for a kind of collective oneness that we're in and what are we up to together on this planet? Because I've, I've noticed that's almost become taboo to talk about universality and there's something in that that feels dangerous not dangerous but it's like is there a third way is there a way to dignify difference and still talk about universal values um, and to not skip over anyone so that's the edge of my own learning like how to do that well and you know my work is primarily around the meditation and contemplative communities so i can say more about that but that's what's lighting me up right now is Mm. Oh man, how do we find the way forward right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do feel like we've swung perhaps, you know, or at least one side of that polarity has been emphasized. I agree with you, you know, like the, the difference and diversity, and that's been important. But this sense of um, unity or, or sameness or, you know, shared purpose is, um, has, is almost, yeah, I think it's almost become a taboo and, and perhaps is, one of the, the the positives which will emerge from this collective world you know global collective experience of 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 meeting the coronavirus and um that's my wish actually so i'm, I'm very yeah. inspired to hear what you're saying and um yeah do you want to share a bit more about where we can find out you could respond to what i said or we or, and then we could segue into where do we find out more about your work 
Yeah, Joel, I, I'd love to just stay, I, I know we will, but I'd love to stay in conversation with you and the larger community about how, how to respond uh, to coronavirus right now. And I've been in conversations with uh, those who have been doing really powerful social and environmental justice organizing the last number of years who were saying they're going into action mode right now, understandably, right? And then how the fact is we also need the skills of being able to surrender control and these larger skills that I think come up inside of, inside of the coaches rising frameworks. How do we understand the body, but how, like at a deeper level, deep level, how can we actually be well-practiced at surrender and being tied into impermanence and responding with compassion and wise action like that. Those are, that's no small thing. And I think we're going to need each other really well to both lean into our practice and then learn what we need to learn going forward inside of this struggle and suffering. So I just love to keep talking. Mm. Cause I don't know about you. I feel like as the, the hatches got battened down this last week, especially here in California, as the dust settled and the kind of vigilance settled, it was like, okay. And I can feel people, myself included going, whoa, whoa, like what is there to learn here? What am I not seeing? What do I need to feel? And I, I just want to stay in an active conversation about that with you. Mm, yeah, wonderful. Well, I can feel my um, um, impulse to respond to that. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we're in a deeply human and yet deeply spiritual inquiry around that surrender. Mm. Uh, our own kind of impulse to do and act and hmm. um, yet let's, let's, yeah. let's actually yeah. leave that. And um, yeah, where, where can we find out about your work? Yeah. So uh, my website's the best place to find out what I'm to. It's um, davidtrelevin.com. And my work is around trauma sensitive mindfulness. So here we are doing trauma sensitive coaching and this conversation and I'm bringing the conversation about trauma sensitive frameworks to the contemplative community. So really those who offer meditation, yoga teachers, anyone who's doing body-based practices, which includes coaches, because my research and work has been around the power of our attention and how that intersects with trauma. And the real headline here is that mindfulness alone isn't always enough when it comes to trauma. We can be with our experience, we can be with what's happening, but then there's also skills of working with, which actually coaches, they know that. I mean, this is where this comes from is there's dynamic skills that enable us to work with the brain and body in really skillful ways. So that's the work that I'm up to. Um, it's If you're a meditation teacher, it's like knowing how to do no harm. And then a course around what are the requisite skills that you'd need to help people widen their windows. So we're doing a course um, starting soon um, in, in in this case, it'll be in April, but you know, we'll, we'll be doing the work. We have free calls on community and it's great to be connected with, with you all just really inspired by um, what you're all doing. So it's good. Good to be in connection. I'll be back again soon until then. Be well.